No, no. They cut open my stomach. They pulled my abdominal muscles apart, then Whoa. cut open my uterus. Oh, and then they moved organs around. Yes. Yes. You. <laughs> and then cut open my uterus and took a baby out. All right. We're coming in hot. Well, we got to do this because eight o'clock is bath time. Three, two, one. As from the very beginning, when all the arts and sciences of motion pictures bring movies to life, it is the director who gives them their pulse. And here are the nominees for the 75th Achievement in Directing. For Chicago, Rob Marshall. For Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese. For The Hours, Stephen Daldry. For The Pianist, Roman Polanski. For Talk to Her, Pedro Almodovar. And the Oscar. Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrong, celebrates the slighted, and rips those Oscars from undeserving hands before bestowing them at long last upon the worthier recipients. I'm Lee Charles. And I'm Spro, and I have to say as we round out this trilogy for season one, and I hope we keep this up as my research shows there's still a lot of work to do, that Spacey is probably going to be the hardest one for me. Weinstein and Polanski were tried in a court of law and found guilty for their crimes. While I believe in the adage, innocent until proven guilty, I also believe our judicial system has a lot of cracks, and currently only Weinstein's physique has not been able to slip through them. But I hate pontificating ad nauseum. I shall shut up and swing for the fences to introduce the newest parents I know, Emily. Hey, what's up, everyone? Hi, Emily. Hi. All right. We we had baby talk before, but how's being a, how's being a mom? <laughs> <laughs> Weird as shit, dude. Weird as shit. <laughs> Right on. So it's exactly how I expect it. Yeah, yeah. But also awesome. I I got a really cool kid. Right on. And a pretty awesome partner who's like watching this really cool kid right now. That is very nice. And please extend our thanks to him for giving you this opportunity to do this uh, third in the series of quickies. Absolutely. Speaking of which, today is the third part. And we've been attacking past winners whose criminal backgrounds, alleged or otherwise, can tarnish the 24 karat gold casing on the Oscars they're unfit to hold. And today we're going to de-Oscar Roman Polanski. I think I had another word there and um, Spro asked me very nicely to change it. So I did another verb. What was uh, the verb? I mean, turn the crime against the uh, the criminal sort of word. Mm, um, this is better. <laughs> starts with an S and ends with an automize. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. So, Just, mm-hmm, so today, mm-hmm. today we're going to be Oscar Roman Polanski, the European filmmaker whose credits include some new Hollywood classics like Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, and uh, Tess. Speaking personally, this is the one that hurts the most. Don't particularly give a shit about Weinstein. And I always kind of felt Spacey was overrated, but Chinatown is, I mean, it's a perfect movie. Polanski's eye is singular, and this, unfortunately, this frequently fabulous work is going to now be irretrievably sullied by rape accusations levied against him in 1977. But in any event, we close out our three-part series by having a quickie with Roman to take away his Best Director Oscar for 2002 for The Pianist. Goes for Roman Polanski, for the pianist. Were they only accusations, though? Were they only accusations? Um, well, I think, I don't want to step on Spro's toes here, but I think he's the one that wants to go down the line. Uh, I believe it en- ended with a, with a plea deal. The Academy congratulates Roman Polanski 
and accepts this award on his behalf. We will get into that. I also want to ask before we get into all the facts about Roman Polanski is that Chinatown was made before any of the allegations were supposedly put in effect. So would you say Chinatown would be sullied if the man committed the crime after the film was put out? This is a question for both of you. I was just going to say, it's always going to be in the back of your head, you know, whether it was before or after. I mean, you watch the Naked Gun movies with O.J. Simpson. I know that he was exonerated, uh, but... um, Yeah, I mean, I watch the Naked Gun movies and I see OJ and it's just like, Ugh. or when you read how OJ was almost the Terminator, but producers were like, nobody's going to believe that he could be this like monstrous murderer and, and evil and he's too nice and too beloved. Huh, I didn't know that fact. I didn't either. What do you think, Emily? Can you, if the man technically isn't a rapist until after, is the work beforehand sullied? That's a really excellent question. I'm going to have to go with this on, on opinion here. Because I think it's a question of can you, you know, can you stomach it as you're watching it? Oof. I know for me, it's tough to enjoy things that I, I know where this person ended up. All right. So Roman Polanski, if you don't know, according to a 13 year old girl's testimony to the grand jury, Polanski had asked her mother, a television actress and model, if he could photograph the girl as part of his work for the French edition of Vogue, which Polanski had been invited to guest edit. Her mother allowed a private photo shoot. The girl testified that she felt uncomfortable during the first session in which she posed topless at Polanski's request and initially did not wish to take part in a second, nevertheless agreed to another shoot. This took place on March 10th, 1977 at the home of actor Jack Nicholson in the Mulholland area of Los Angeles. When the crime was committed, Nicholson was on a ski trip in Colorado and his live-in girlfriend, actress Angelica Houston, who was there, had left, but later returned while the photo shoot was taking place. The girl was quoted in a later article as saying that Houston became suspicious of what was going on behind the closed bedroom door and began banging on it, but left when Polanski insisted that they were finishing up the photo shoot. We did photos with me drinking champagne, she says. Toward the end, it got a little scary and I realized he had other intentions and I knew I was not where I should be. I just didn't know, quite know how to get myself out of there. In a 2003 interview, she recalled that she began to feel uncomfortable after he asked her to lie down on a bed and described how she attempted to resist. I said no. No, I don't want to go in there. No, I don't want to do this. No. And then I didn't know what else to do, she stated, adding, We were alone, and I didn't know what else would happen if I made a scene. So I was just scared, and after giving some resistance, I figured, well, I guess I'll get to come home after this. She testified that Polanski provided champagne that they shared as well as part of a quaalude, and despite her protest, he performed oral, vaginal, and anal sex acts upon her, each time after being told no and being asked to stop. Once again, I want to remind listeners this is a 43-year-old man, older than any of us recording this podcast now with a 13-year-old girl, the age of which a student in middle school. Although she has insisted that the sex was non-consensual, Polanski has disputed this. In Polanski's autobiography, written seven years after his arrest, his account of the crime does not smack of a man overly burdened with feelings of guilt. He describes grooming her on the drive to the photo shoot. I asked when she'd first started having sex, he writes, as if that's a normal thing for a 43-year-old man to ask a 13-year-old girl. When she said she was thirsty, he provided alcohol. We weren't saying much now, Polanski writes, but I could sense a certain erotic tension between us. Polanski recounts what he described as making love. There was no doubt about her experience and lack of inhibition. She spread herself and I entered her. She was not unresponsive, he writes. Claiming to protect her from a trial, her attorney arranged a plea bargain. Polanski accepted, and under the terms of the agreement, the five 
five initial charges were dismissed. One, rape by use of drugs. Two, perversion. Three, sodomy. Four, lewd and lascivious act upon a child under 14. Five, furnishing a controlled substance to a minor. Instead, Polanski pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of engaging in unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. Under the terms set by the court, he traveled to Europe to complete filming of upcoming 1979 remake of Hurricane. Polanski was photographed at Oktoberfest 1977 with his arms on multiple young girls and jars of beer around him. He ordered to return to California and reported to China State Prison for a psychological evaluation period beginning on December 19, 1977, and was released after 42 of the 90 scheduled days. Polanski's attorney said that the presiding judge suggested to them that he would send the director to prison and order him deported. In response to the threat of imprisonment, Polanski became a fugitive from justice, fleeing from the United States and going to England. Polanski fled initially to London on February 1st, where he maintained a residence. A day later, he traveled on to France, where he has held citizenship, thus avoiding the possibility of extradition to the United States. And that's where we will open up the episode until the very end when we say where we are now with Roman Polanski. I can just say uh, from just hearing that read out loud, where I am with that guy is fuck that guy. That's all. So Polanski won in 2002 for best director for The Pianist, which is a great film. Like you can't deny that there is serious talent behind the camera there, but we are going to take the Oscar away. Now, does everybody have their picks? Is everybody coming to the table hot with who they know that they're going to suggest? Or should we run down the nominees and everything? We can do that. Let's go over some of the directors that were not even nominated this year because there were some good ones. There was Steven Spielberg wasn't nominated this year for Catch Me If You Can. I'm really sorry if I made a fool out of you. I really am. Uh, no, no, listen, no, I really no. am. I you, you do not feel sorry for me. The truth is, I knew it was you. Now, maybe I didn't get the cuffs on you, but I knew. Oh, people only know what you tell them, Carl. Well, then tell me this, Barry Allen Secret Service. How did you know I wouldn't look in your wallet? The same reason the Yankees always win. Nobody can keep their eyes off the pinstripes. The Yankees win because they have Mickey Mantle. Or Minority Report. Mm. Spike Jones for Adaptation. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I love that movie. I fucking Uh, love that movie. I can't believe it wasn't nominated that year. Kaufman won that year for writing, but has Jones ever been nominated for director? I think for her, which wasn't his best, I would say. No, I I think adaptation blows that one out of the water. Yeah. It has a weak third act for me, though. It does get weird. When they start going away from Kaufman and more toward like Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper's love story. Like, eh. I like it. I like the whole front to back. I like the whole thing. I do hope that Spike Jones does get like an Oscar at some point. I just think he's one of those directors that I will go to the theater and see. Next director up, Doug Lyman for The Born Identity. It's an action film. I know it's a long shot. I put it on there because the way he depicts action, I mean, the Bond movies pretty much just poached his style after Born Identity. 
Sam Mendez, who did Road to Perdition this year, but he later went on to do Skyfall and Spectre. Road to Perdition is such a great movie, but Tom Hanks is so miscast in that movie. Yes. Yes, he is. I mean, he pulls it off. He's a good actor, but... I'm bothered by thinking that Tom Hanks might have failed at something. (laughs) Well, I'm sure Lee could give you plenty of examples of where Tom Hanks failed. Because you didn't like Forrest Gump. What? No, no, I I loved it when I was a kid. But, you know, now when I watch it and I, I think about how successful it was... I mean, it's like the conversation we were having about Field of Dreams the other day. It's like, get the fuck out of here with this nonsense, this boomer, magical boomerisms. <laughs> I mean, I still like Shawshank Redemption because it's a good story. It's not just like, here's this dumb dumb tripping through history. He's so sweet and kind. He's a billionaire. Oh, now his wife's dead. Cry, 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 cry. Haley Joel Osment. It's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> I'll be the guy. I really like that breakdown of Forrest Gump. (laughs) It's pretty good. And I'm sorry. I haven't seen Field of Dreams in a while, but goddamn, there's just, I still have a lot of love for it in my heart. All right. So moving on, Alexander Payne for About Schmidt. Oh, dude. Kathy Bates gets ass naked and gets into a hot tub with a drug paralyzed Jack Nicholson. Dude, Kathy Bates has gotten naked many times. Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune, like, is theater. Mm. She originated the role of Frankie. Anyway, she's been naked a bunch of times. It's fine. Continue. Spike Lee, the 25th hour. It's a good one. It's that one scene, though, where he talks to himself in the mirror. Fuck you, too. Fuck me. Fuck you. Fuck you and this whole city and everyone in it. No, 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 no. Fuck the panhandlers grubbing for money and smiling at me behind my back. Fuck the squeegee men, dirty enough to clean windshield of my car. Get a fucking job. Fuck the Sikhs and the Pakistanis bombing down the avenues in decrepit cabs. Curry steaming out their pores, stinking up my day. Terrorists in fucking training. Slow the fuck down! I think the rest of the movie around it is kind of forgettable. But that one scene, that was when Norton was just at the top of his game, too. Every time he was coming out with a movie, it was like, what's it going to be? And then he made that dumbass movie with Jenna Elfman and Ben Stiller, Keeping the Faith. Paul Thomas Anderson for Punch Drunk Love. You know, okay, it's been a while. It's been a while, but I absolutely love this movie. I like, I like, I yeah. like it. I love Emily Watson in everything. Yeah. I, just, I love when they finally get together and he's like, oh, I just want to smash your face in. I'm looking at your face and I just want to smash it. I just want to fucking smash it with a sledgehammer and squeeze it. You're so pretty. It's the exact scene that I was thinking of. (laughs) Fernando Morales for City of God, which I just watched this movie and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I doubt it would have gotten a nod back in the day when they weren't really looking at Ford pitchers for like best director or anything. If it came out nowadays, he would he would win. So the last but not least director of the non-nominateds, which I think this one I would go to bat for is Peter Jackson for The Two Towers. And I want to I mean, say I would go to bat for it because The Two Towers is my favorite of the trilogy. Yeah, I, it's not my favorite of the trilogy, but I, I just consider them all one gigantic, just miracle of, of cinema. Those are some of my favorite 
extras on DVDs to watch, the extended features. You can just basically, they documented every, everything about that movie. Everybody coming together and making the whole thing in New Zealand. And, and it was executive produced by Harvey and Bob Weinstein because it was originally a Miramax picture. Miramax wanted to cut it from two movies to one. And Jackson was like, no, no, I can't do that. I like Fellowship the most though, because it's very Gandalf heavy. And that's when he's like bumbly, like happy Gandalf and not grumpy Gandalf the White. (laughs) That's fair. I do remember at the time really liking Two Towers. Yeah, not a whole lot of people do say Return of the King, which he ended up winning for. I just remember sitting there for Return of the King and feeling like there was like five false endings where they keep Mm -hmm. fading to black and then coming back. And I was like, I really have to go to the bathroom and I need this movie (laughs) to kind of like wrap up because I've been holding it since Aragorn came back. Return used to be my favorite. Did you get old and sad and then decide you like the good old days with Fellowship? <laughs> Here's a question, though, for Peter Jackson and Two Towers and also for Fellowship of the Ring. Do you think that the Academy consciously did not award him until the whole series was wrapped up? A, because they wanted to make sure that he pulled it off as well as he did, or B, because they knew that he was going to pull it off and they just were like, let's not award him all three years for this. What won Best Picture of 01? Was it A Beautiful Mind? Yes. You didn't like A Beautiful Mind? That's one of my favorite Oscar winners of all time. I'm not a fan of Ron Howard or Paul Haggis. You're, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not a fan of Ron Howard? No, what did not Opie really. do to you? He made movies that I spent money on, and then I'm like, why did I come and see this? I think I just keep seeing all of his bad movies. I still haven't seen Rush. I'd love to see Rush. I went and saw The Wailing One with Thor. The, in the Heart, in of, the heart the of the Sea. In the Heart of the Sea, yeah. Boy, it was bad. I just remember the billboard and being like, no, I'm not seeing that. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. I think that's on you, man. <laughs> Spro and I both were like, mm, no. <laughs> So then I guess you guys escaped the the evil clutches of Ron Howard and I didn't. What about like classic like Ron Howard? Flash? Yes. Um, Yeah, that's a good movie. What's your name? It's hard to say in English. Well, just say in your language. All right. My name is... Splash Cocoon. Apollo 13 Ransom is one that I like and Cinderella Man. I did like Ransom. I didn't mind Solo. I'm going to go out on that limb. Which is always a a ringing endorsement. Are are you happy with your marriage? I don't mind it. We're going to go off topic here, but in the same instance, the, my one problem always with Star Wars and the Force is the most powerful people with the Force always get into sword fights. And I'm like, you can literally hold your enemy still with the Force. Why are you slapping sticks together? Like, just hold them still and decapitate them. That's and- a really excellent. Why has no one talked about this before? <laughs> And with Solo, there was no like force thing in there. So I was like, oh, this is a Star Wars movie that I'm not going to get that hang up on. Okay. Anyway, Ron Howard is great. Lee, you're wrong as per usual and moving on. (laughs) Those were our non-nominated. And I'm assuming nobody's going to go to bat for any of those to take home the award today. Honestly, I might for adaptation. That would be a strong one. Uh, I got to look at the other ones. So our nominated, there's Pedro Almodovar for Talk to Her. Steven Daldry for The Hours. I mean, I dug the hours. 
one of my favorite authors of all time is Virginia Woolf. I like reading her crit- her literary criticism. I like reading her correspondence, her poetry, her short stories, her novels. I think A Room of One's Own is the most amazing book that I've ever only read once. And I've tried to read it again, but it, it is like literally the modernist stream of consciousness writing. And it's tough. It's tough read. But mm-hmm. but I just, you slap a crooked nose on a beautiful woman and you're like, voila. <laughs> Jesus I don't. I mean, Christ. Nicole Kidman is 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 really good in the movie. I just I would have preferred a more Virginia Woolf heavy story. I like the way the women are impacted throughout the generations. I think it's probably top three favorite Julianne Moore performances. It's up there with Don John. It's so drab. I do remember a whole lot being made about the nose being put on Nicole Kidman for this movie, mm-hmm. like Entertainment Weekly, Entertainment Tonight. They were all just being like, and this is the prosthetic nose that they put on Nicole. It just ad nauseum talking about it. And so when you were talking there, Lee, I looked it up and it wasn't until 2003 when Charlize Theron did Monster, remember? And they're oh, talking yeah. about like beautiful women uglying themselves up for a golden statue. And it's kind of like, I really feel like this is where the changeover happened, where it's like, no, 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 beautiful women don't need to be beautiful all the time. And I feel like Nicole Kidman's nose in the hours is maybe the first sign that we saw the changeover happening. Uh, how about just a, a wider variety of, of actresses being cast, like uh, Olivia Coleman winning Best Actress for The Favorite. I mean, she's no Nicole Kidman. I remember like being really impressed with Philip Glass's score for like the first hour and it, it just doesn't stop. It's this constant like constant piano. It's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what Philip Glass does. Right, but I mean, it's incessant. There are never moments yeah. of no musical score in the movie. Of just a dun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's continuous. It's definitely not something that you want to pull off the shelf. It's not a Gangs of New York or a, or a talk to her. I really, really liked it and also big Virginia Woolf fan, and, but it didn't knock me out. I will agree with that. Like it was a good movie, but I probably have not thought about it in like the past 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. It is absolutely one that I saw on this list and went, oh yeah. (laughs) Now there's Martin Scorsese for Gangs of New York. Martin Scorsese. I hated this movie the first time I saw it. I still maintain that I don't think DiCaprio is as good as everybody says he is. Um, He's definitely gotten better and he is awful in this movie. Almost as bad as Cameron Diaz. But my brother bought this movie for me and he was like, just give it another watch. And it is, I mean, the sets in this movie, the costumes, it's pretty great watch. Despite the fact that you've got Leo and Diaz stinking up the set, you've also got Brendan Gleeson, Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously. You got Jim Broadbent as Tammany, Henry Thomas. The culmination of the race riots that happened. I mean, it's it's not a hundred percent accurate historically accurate. I mean, it is. It's kind of a creepy one to watch now. Oh, it's absolutely creepy to watch now. I mean, here's the thing: it's also a Miramax film. Mm-hmm. So if the whole idea is taking it away from Polanski to give it to someone else, this I don't think this clears anyone's conscience. Good point. Shut up, Emily. Um. <laughs> The last one, so Roman Polanski won for The Pianist, and then the last director was Rob Marshall for Chicago! Chicago! 
And this one's gonna be my pick. Does anybody want to talk about it before I go in? You go ahead and do your, uh, give your spiel. All right. So, originally in line to direct the film for Rent, Rob Marshall pitched Chicago to Miramax. And what Marshall did with his directorial debut of Chicago is a feat that I had never seen before this, and I don't know if I will ever see again. In my opinion, Rob Marshall took a great play, a somewhat beloved play, and he made a movie so good has almost ruined the play for me since. Matter of fact, I've seen no less than three professional live stage productions of Chicago since seeing the movie, and none I felt were as good as this movie. The cinematography, the costumes, the editing, the casting, every part of the Chicago film is a masterpiece. He tried to repeat his success later on with Lost in the Woods and Nine and... I don't know, like I could barely get through them. His first film included in 13 categories at the Academy Awards, nominated for Best Song, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, himself as Best Director, Best Supporting Nods for Queen Latifah and John C. Riley, and a Best Actress Nod for Renee Zellweger. Then it wins Catherine Zeta-Jones for Best Supporting Actress, Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Costumes, Best Art, Set Direction, and finally, the Best Friggin' Picture. Where has it been done before? Where has it been done where when you put on the film, you feel satisfied as if seeing the play? Most of the time, you put on the film to give yourself a taste of the play. Rent, Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, A Chorus Line. These films make you want to buy tickets to the theater, but Chicago is different. Chicago, you buy tickets for the live experience, but you don't get that whisper of a thrill as you do watching Catherine Zeta-Jones kick up her heels or Renee Zellweger shake her tassels or Richard Gere tap dance or Queen Latifah making her fucking name known, my God. Maya as a murderess, Tay Diggs as the band leader, John C. Riley, Christine Baranski. Shout out to the casting directors, Ali Farrell and Laura Rosenthal for this masterpiece. You can thank Marshall for the Hollywood churning out big budget musicals at a pace that had not touched in half a century. Films like Dreamgirls, or, Les Miserables. we can not thank them, you know. Les Miserables, Mamma Mia, Sweeney Todd, and La La Land, or television's Glee, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and a batch of new Broadway hits, The Book of Mormon and Hamilton. Broadway itself was changed because of a film. Broadway brought in 600 mil with a 0102 season, and in the next year, ranked in 100 million more to have a gross gross of 720 million. Last year, Broadway raked in 1.8 billion. Marshall, with his creative partner, John DeLuca now has a production deal with Disney for which he directed the thorny Steven Sondheim musical Into the Woods and is in the exploratory phase of a live action remake of The Little Mermaid. But let's be genuine. There's a name attached to this piece that if I'm going to be the god of Moses here and leave Hollywood as scorched earth, Harvey Weinstein's name will come up on your screen as an executive producer. And I have to be honest, when it comes to my sodomy and Gamora-ish vengeance plan, I want everything the bastard's name touched to be struck from the annals of history, especially if anyone knew what Weinstein was doing and profited either financially or with fame and power from keeping quiet about it. Harvey is alleged to have been a molesting slash raping unempathetic monster from 1990 to 2015, landing Chicago right in the hair-covered cottage cheese butt crack of this all. Could I say Rob Marshall, a director in the theater world on his first feature film, didn't know about Weinstein's tendency to rape? According to the New York Times, Marshall collapsed on set because he worked sunup to sundown trying to meet Weinstein's production schedule. And according to the Times, Weinstein was more on set at Gangs of New York trying to win his boy Marty a directing Oscar. Marshall is said to have confronted Mr. Weinstein publicly over his energetic campaign to win the directing Oscar for Scorsese. Marshall, who was also directing nominee, had been a good sport about Miramax's campaigning for another director, but was said to have been pushed over the edge by a Miramax newspaper advertisement for gangs that reprinted an opinion article from the Los Angeles Daily News written by the director Robert Wise in support of Scorsese. To have the director of The Sound of Music come out in favor of gangs director was apparently the final straw, and a very hurt Marshall was said to have had very strong words with 
with Weinstein about it. Then did not attend a party that Weinstein gave to celebrate the Chicago victories at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Safe to say, since Marshall was no stranger to speaking his mind or putting his foot down when the Weinstein revolutions came out and he did not jump on the boat of stone throwers and said he had no idea, I believe him and I firmly support him for the award. Marshall had $64 million budget, which is nothing to sneeze at, but if you look at the star power, it's on the low end of this kind of production. That's a pretty good argument, the whole work ethic aspect of it. I think the best thing about this movie is the editing, and it was a well-won editing Oscar. And it's interesting that 23 years earlier, all that jazz won the same Oscar. I will say, though, that Marshall directed and choreographed this for the Broadway stage beginning in 1992, more than 9,000 performances. In fact, it still holds the record for the longest running revival musical on Broadway. It's not that it's not a well-directed film, but it's already been visualized by the director so many times prior that despite transmuting it to film, it doesn't it doesn't really break new ground. But on that note, Rent is always the same way in the Rent movie. Blue. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> Sure. No, I will. I will totally argue against that, um, Lee Charles, because when it comes, I could say the fucking sky is blue, and you'd be like, "Oh, I'm actually gonna go ahead and disagree with you." (laughs) I appreciate consistency in people. What can I say? Because seeing something on stage and viewing that on stage is completely different than approaching that from a film perspective. And yeah, there are plenty of brilliant musicals that. So you're saying that nine thousand directed performances by Rob Marshall doesn't give him some sort of a pretty good idea. And why do you think? Why do you think when that other project was in pre-production hell that he was like, I could probably just whip up Chicago. (laughs) I mean, I've directed it a billion times. No, he directed it once. It just played a thousand times. And again, just because you have successfully directed something on stage does not mean you know how to transfer that onto film. Fair enough. And there are plenty of people that have failed doing that transition and plenty of shows that have have failed that transition. Now, if I were you, I'd start going, uh, name one. Can you name another? Why do you think Hamilton came out as they filmed the stage play and then put it on Disney Plus? Because it's easier. Yeah. No, they could have made a movie. They could have made a movie. But- I don't think they'd be able to create it in the same spirit as the Hamilton musical. I think there are some things that are better just left at what that stage version is. Oh, can you think of somebody, another play? Somebody like Rob Marshall were to come along, but I don't know if he can because he, he didn't successfully do it with Nine, and I wouldn't say he necessarily did it with Into the Woods. I can't think of another play that has been made into a movie where somebody's like, "Yeah, but have you seen the movie?" Well, a no? play, yes. Musical, no. Okay, yeah. Fair I mean, like, point. look at a fair few. Point. Look at a few good men. Look at there are plenty of plays that were became very successful films. Yeah, and even some that didn't deserve it, like A Few Good Men. We're not going down this road <laughs> right now. Can you think uh, of I, another musical though that like I can't? My pool of of musicals is pretty shallow. I've seen a lot of the classics, West Side Story, Oklahoma, King and I, South. I, my mom watched all the Rodgers and Hammersteins. And those are clearly at a time when they were like, just build a soundstage, just shoot it like you're shooting a play. But yeah, so my second place director of the year is Spike Jones, who I think is one of the most unique directors working today, up there with Ari Aster and Yorgos Lanthimos, but with more mainstream appeal. I really hope Jones wins an Academy Award for something other than writing, as he's always a fun and interesting watch. But the third act of adaptation uh like i said before it turns into just a caper movie that falls flat for me so 
but yeah, so we all know the old saying that the movie is never as good as the book. What was? Would Fosse be proud of this? What about the movie never being as good as the play? Maybe it's the sound of music? Will I get hate if I say I really actually like the film Oliver and might put that as my second favorite musical adaptation? I think only one play adaptation makes me turn off the old ghost light on the stage. And as Richard Gere says through the jail cell bars, that's Chicago. That's Chicago. So I think Rob Marshall deserved the best director to go along with his best picture. And I will fight for that. Well done. That was a good argument. I will leave the floor up to you guys. Well, I'll jump in. I chose one that we didn't talk about. I think you buried the lead and didn't bring it up because you knew I was going to bring it up. Well, I've lost some of my confidence in this pick just because, you know, you ask me today and my answer is going to be different than it will be two months from now. That's why I love that about art. But I picked 28 Days Later and I would have given the Oscar to Danny Boyle. So who are you? Wake up today in hospital. Wake up and I'm... I'm hallucinating. Got some bad news. They're infected. Infected. Butter. Infected with what? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. The blood. There's something in the blood. There's someone. You never go anywhere alone unless you've got no choice. Hello. Two. Only travel during daylight. Unless you've got no choice. See, this is a really shit idea. You know why? This is obviously a shit idea. We have to leave now. More will be coming. They always do. I think this is his best work, despite the fact that it's kind of looks like a piece of shit now when you look at it, quality-wise. But I'm fascinated by the advent of digital filmmaking. It's the gradual backlash from the cellular loyalists like Nolan and, and Tarantino. I bought you that documentary, Spro, the side-by-side documentary. I've watched that no fewer than probably 20 times super engrossing conversation. And whenever I try and bring it up, I can hear people like falling asleep around me. So I I can say I appreciate film and I can appreciate how film projection is still available in special event screenings. If you are paying attention, then you, it has to be admitted that digital technology has augment. It's brought something new to the filmmaking process in some revolutionary ways. So Boyle was inspired uh, at the time. He, he said he wanted to make something completely different from what he'd been making. He was drawing on inspiration from Dutch director Lars von Trier and the Dogma 95 movement of digital filmmaking, in particular this movie called The Celebration, which I watched. And it, it's all craft. I mean, it's a kind of a boring movie, but I mean, you can see why this movie was so influential to filmmakers like Boyle, who at the time were like ready to break out and do something new. And it was actually the director of photography on the, the celebration that uh, Anthony Dodd mantle that Boyle brought in to work on 28 Days Later. Anyway, so it's the maneuverability of the camera that excites Boyle. And you can see that in not only this movie, but you can see it in the in Slumdog Millionaire, which he won Best Director for, and actually Anthony Dodd mantle won Best Cinematography for. I just think this is a better movie than Slumdog. Slumdog is, in a lot of ways, it's that same argument that I would make with you about Forrest Gump. In my mind, he succeeded in making something indelible, terrifying, and increasingly resonant. I watched this 
like a month and a half ago, maybe going closer to two months at this point. There's been plenty of things that, that I've been revisiting to make myself feel better, like Liar Liar and Happy Gilmore and Tommy Boy. But this was one that I revisited and it, it didn't make me feel worse. And I'll say why in a second, but it did like I was watching the panic at the ghost town and the, the fear of, of sickness and illness and transmission. So in 2001, he began production and digital technology was still in its nascent stages. And the best images that could be produced digitally required a budget like Lucas had on Attack of the Clones. But Boyle and Mantid opted to use a mini DV, a format that was already outdated by the time they started using it. So rather than suffering from this artistic choice, the look of the movie becomes the primary tonal influence. It's sometimes able to communicate this like impressionistic beauty, like when they see the wild horses. And then most of the time, <laughs> it just, it's this obscured and murky warped reality. And it, I think it really works. You probably will turn it on again if you haven't seen it in a while and be like, boy, this, this looks like shit. The original Clerks looks better than this. And it is. It's, it's grainy. The introduction of Killian Murphy's character is one of the great moments of surreal filmmaking and probably the coolest, most effective story hook following the, uh, the monkey attack. So the use of digital tech allowed Boyle to rapidly shoot these scenes in London, sometimes using up to 11 cameras for a 190-second take uh, before traffic resumed. They would have people stopping traffic. I've heard different versions of the story, all never from Boyle's mouth himself, but I've heard that they paid women to, pr to dress in like provocative clothes and, and pretend like they were prostitutes. And like it actually worked to stop traffic. I've heard that in other cases, it was just friends of the production just went down and they were like, hey, do you guys mind just waiting here for a second? So in any event, they guerrilla styled this. They didn't have a permit, which is fucking cool. Scour every inch of the frames of London looking for a car or movement of any kind. Fucking town looks empty. So I want to go. I would love to go on and on about casting choices. Killian Murphy was not the first choice. Ewan McGregor had worked with Boyle previously on train spotting, but they had a falling out. Ryan Gosling was almost the lead, but was unavailable. No shit. That yeah. would have been a totally different movie. Gosling's starting to grow on me. Did you ever see The Nice Guys with him and Russell Crowe? Yeah. Oh my God, that shit was hilarious. I always like Gosling. He's just too pretty. Like, it, he would have been too pretty in this movie if he got yeah. the part. Ewan McGregor, not pretty. <laughs> Killian Murphy, really pretty eyes. Oh, I think, I think you're wrong on both accounts right there. <laughs> you think they're pretty guys? Killian Murphy is... Yes. I yes. think he's a handsome I think he's a handsome chap. He's a handsome fellow, but he's not pretty like Ryan like smooth skin I put lotion on. Ryan Okay, Gosling. no, 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 that's that's fair. So the editing styles which I believe the editing of Boyle's films which I believe is at its best here and not the hyperactive train spotting. The score by John Murphy which, you know, other than being chosen by Boyle has no direct links to Boyle's own talent. A, a simple end to my diatribe here. So Jim's climactic line to the traumatized and insular Selena played beautifully by uh, Naomi Harris, where he says it's not all fucked. I would say his themes go for the horror thriller genre. I'm hard pressed to think of one that is at once so simple yet so powerful, so beautifully embodied by Jim, Selena, Frank, and Hannah. The brief moments of their joy, that whole scene where they go into the, the grocery store and just go shopping and that silly music is the... <laughs> Irradiated. Yes, yes. Love that whole scene. And he just leaves the... They're like this little family. And when they lose 
Frank, it's so fucking sad. Like the, all, the, all four of them are looking after each other. Jim's being kind of a little bit bratty and not listening to Selena, but you know, seeing Frank and Hannah together and him like taking on the role of dad for all of them. And I think it's ultimately a theme that resonates with me still. And one that I think should resonate for a long time. It's not all fucked guys. Uh, yeah. I mean, I really like 28 days later as a pick Emily. Yeah. I'm I'm completely with you on that. I mean, I have a a strong pull to this movie from very specific memories of of seeing it in college. Yeah, I, I think this is phenomenal. And this was also on my list of movies that I watched um, as we were getting into quarantine and pandemic time, including uh, watching Outbreak, watching some zombie virus movies. This has always been my favorite zombie movie. I don't even think you can call it a zombie movie. I think it's too well done to call it that. So I'm, I'm with you. I think this is a great choice. I do think there needs to be something to be said when it comes to like a best director award, like we're saying, and giving credence to the directors like you were talking about where he was clearing London for some of these shots and they're not like close shots like they're wide sweeping shots of like like no traffic London Bridge Tower Bridge with Parliament right there fucking no I can I can only imagine the amount of money that they that they went through to to clear those streets or to at least clear like the um, transportation and just what the ADs had to go through as far as as clearing that hole, just coming from the other side of that and having to like, just can't imagine what they went through for it. So do you believe the stories that Leah was putting down that like they were, it was guerrilla filmmaking and they were like stopping traffic in order to get a 90 yeah, second that's shot? that's what I've heard on multiple accounts, but never from Boyle's mouth himself that- I think they absolutely could have probably did that for some things, but some of those wide shots, like I have been on set when we have had to shut down the subway, when we have had to shut down New York streets and it is like cops- everywhere and having to talk to the MTA having to talk to you've got to you've got to shut down the in, everything that happens that is a a city service and that's all got to be controlled so I, I'm sure there there were some shots I could totally see happening that way, but the big shots, like you have to clear city buses. So that's that's a whole other situation that well, I don't think they'd be able to do with some people dressed provocatively. Although I don't, possibly. I don't think they did. They, I mean, they 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 didn't do setups. I mean, it was literally just they used the natural light. Which, if you've been to London, I say that like I have. <laughs> Uh, which I understand in London, the natural light is not as reliable, um, and it, it looks like it. I mean, I mean, no, if you yeah, re- sure, but to clear to have London, especially during daylight, uh, um, and plus they had to do a huge amount of artwork there as far as production design with the amount of garbage that was there. Because I mean, London's right. a pretty clean right. city. I didn't even think of that. I've been on set when we've had to clear Times Square, and it's a situation. <laughs> Love having you on the show to bring that level of professional knowledge in. Sure. And I'm, I imagine that uh, the production designer would be, if he was ever listening to this, would be like, the fuck are you talking about? Do you know how hard I had to work <laughs> to get those ex- the exact paper right? Thinking of that scene, too, where he just starts cracking open sodas and like guzzling them. Oh, my God. There's so much in that. Like the shopping carts, the like... There's so much detail in that movie that was done so well. What do you think of the third act of that, Spro? And I know there's a lot of problems with Garland, the third act of Garland's uh, script for Sunshine. I I like it. But what do you think of the third act where like it becomes kind of becomes this other movie? I love when movies do that. I can't firmly say I love when movies do that. Like we were just talking about 10 Cloverfield Lane, where the third act just becomes a complete alien movie. And you're like, what the fuck is this? 
it took me two times to see this movie to be like, okay, I get it and I appreciate it. Because the first time I did go being like, they made a big deal about that these zombies were going to run quickly. They weren't going to be the slow moving Romero zombies. And so when I showed up for the theater, I was like, yes, give it to me. And then <laughs> you, you don't get that movie. And so the second time I went, you could appreciate that this isn't like we were saying, this isn't a zombie movie. This is something that transcended zombie movies and was more about the heart. It would we have walking dead be as successful as it is if 28 days later didn't show the human side of what a zombie apocalypse would mean to the people i don't know yeah also have you watched the extras the dvd extras on 28 days later where they show the the alternative third act oh, yeah. i actually saw a showing where they they cut that into the real it's really interesting. I'm glad they went to the direction they went, but it's real interesting. They've got the different ending, but they, we're talking an entire third act. They didn't even go to the army base. Really? What did they do? They were in a hospital. Mm, just hold up. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that you know the people that are supposed to be our protectors are the ones then that basically the guys just sort of assuming control and power. And uh, Oh yeah, agreed. Spot on. And there's so much that the, uh, I, I forget who it is who's running the army base yeah. or the military military base. But you know, so many of the things he says, the scene where he has the zombie tied up in the courtyard and is like, is like, what is he saying to you? He's telling me he'll never bake bread, plant crops, raise livestock. He's telling me he's futureless. And eventually he'll tell me how long the infected take to starve to death. He seems like this really good dude until they're eating dinner and they've got that one guy that, I mean, you got have to guess that they make him, that they emasculate him by making him dress up in like the like flowery apron mm-hmm. and all that shit. And I forget what it, exactly. Oh, it's the eggs. Guy makes eggs as like a celebration to welcome the folks there. And uh, yeah, and he pitches like a little bitch fit. He's like, didn't you know these eggs had turned? And he, he like c- cleared it away. What are you cooking, Jones? Surprise, sir. I can't wait. So, what have we here? Tinned ham, tinned peas, tinned beans, and... Omelette! You've prepared a feast, Jones. Honor of our guests, sir. Jones, did you notice while cooking that these eggs are off? I, I thought the salt might cover the taste, sir. And he like takes everybody's food away. It's like, wh- why? Because you didn't like it? Fuck you. Give me my eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Although I will say in that scene, that character, he gives away exactly what's going on with those uh, the rest of the military there. Because he uh, has just one moment that he looks over at and says like, honored for our guests, sir. And like gives a look over and it's like, oh, they're going to try to rape them. Immediately, it came to me as soon as he gave one look to uh, two actresses. That's like it, it's almost like a joke, like that you'd say as kids, like if we were the last people on earth, we'd have to have sex to reply. But just, that's it, not even what this is, because he says to him, "I promise them women." Yeah, yeah. It's not even about repopulating. It's about it, it is simply about their want. By the way, I have to leave in two minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, well, who's your pick? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have no book report, but I will say of just looking at the titles of just my my weary memory adaptation direction would be would be my winner. She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She 
she's thinking, I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's, that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I, I was wondering... Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm going to be a screenwriter, like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. No! I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? I guess we thought that maybe Susan and LaRoche could fall in love. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing. It's like I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. She's crying. What's she hiding from? I think you actually need to speak to this woman to know her. People find love. People lose it. Every day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. Who's gonna play me? Oh, I think I should play me. Three-way split. I'm almost sold on 28 Days Later. Some of that is just my uh, is nostalgia and my nostalgic appreciation for that movie. At the end of the day, uh, adaptation. I, I think in another director's hands could have gone to lunacy, and it was able to balance the tone of that movie incredible acting in a very specific way that had me wrapped. And it's still one of those movies that stays with me now. So adaptation would be my winner. I actually visited you in Dayton the day that you saw adaptation. Well, now what do we do? Fearless leader, Spro? Well, my second win in the running would probably be 28 Days Later. So I'm willing to forego Rob Marshall. And it seemed like Emily did adaptation, but was leaning also a little 28 Uh Days Later way. Absolutely give it to 28 Days Later. No problem. Just because of Danny Boyle, what the director had to do with on an $8 million budget and what he churned out. I think the Academy doesn't give enough credit for what a director has to go through to get a movie up and going. All right, but you have to go. We will wrap this up for you. But I do want to say that I appreciate you visiting us on these three episodes. And Hollywood is not bereft of people that need to get their awards taken away from them, like we were saying earlier about Woody Allen and his adopted daughter. So will you come back for season two to take away some more Oscars from weird, creepy men? Oh, hell yes. I will happily come back. All right. You give your baby kisses for us. I will. Love you both. You're all fucking awesome. All right. right. So good job, Lee. You convinced us about Danny Boyle winning for 28 Days Later. I mean, honestly, I was just like, here it comes. He's going to side with her. (laughs) 
Because like I said, the third act of Adept, I will give it to you. The third act of 20 Days Later is different, a different movie. But the third act of Adaptation, it really like I barely finished that movie. I always love the first act. The first act is my favorite. It's kind of like what we were talking about with Up. I really like the intro. I have read the script, like the first couple pages of Charlie Kaufman just going through all of his anxieties at the opening of the movie. More so than I think I have read any other screenplay before, but I just don't like it when it turns into a caper movie over the ghost orchids. I love Spike Jones. I will always Spike Jones is one of those. And like Yorgos Th- Lanthimos, like I said, like I will go to a theater if he's releasing a movie just because there are directors out there like him, like Quentin Tarantino, that you just go, yeah, no, I'm going to buy the ticket. And regardless of whether or not I think this is a fantastic movie, I'm going to be happy that I spent my money to support his art in the movie theater. Let's be honest here. Other than Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, um, and The Pianist. I liked Tess. I didn't love it. I mean, Polanski's not from my era. I guess it would be, you know, when I say that this one hurts the most, it, it's because it is. It's that like, wow, I've seen the things that this person has put together and I have a high amount of respect for the work. God, if it ever came out that like Edgar Wright did something horrible or Tarantino did or shit, even Spielberg, I'd be like, really? Yeah. So to bring it around to Polanski, Polanski has never returned to England and later sold his home there. The U.S. could still request the arrest and extradition of Polanski from other countries should he visit them. And Polanski has avoided visits to countries such as the UK that were likely to extradite him. After Tate was murdered in 1969, when Polanski was 36, he spent time in Gestad. Do you say Stad? Is the G silent? Scent of a woman really screwed me up with the (laughs) pronunciation of this country. Stad, where he slept with schoolgirls aged 16 to 19, who were, he writes, more beautiful in a natural, cultish way than they would ever be again. In 1976, he met Natasha Kinski, and according to his autobiography, slept with her. When he then learned she was only 15, he continued to sleep with her for several months, he wrote. In 1986, he met the woman who would be his next wife, the actress Emmanuel Siner. He was 51, she was 18. Now, as far as Hollywood, because nobody should get a free pass on this, Sigourney Weaver, Harrison Ford, Johnny Depp, Ewan McGregor, Pierce Brosnan, Kate Winslet, and many more have appeared in Polanski movies in the decades since his conviction. And questions about why they were working with a convicted child rapist were seen as tacky, proof of a rigid mind more focused on gossip than art. When Winslet was asked whether she had any qualms about working with Woody Allen, another director accused, but unlike Polanski, never arrested and never charged of a sex crime against a minor, she replied, having thought it all through, you put to it to one side and just work with the person. Woody Allen is an incredible director. So is Roman Polanski. I had an extraordinary working experience with both of those men, and that's the truth. Now, after the Weinstein story broke at the London Critics Circle Awards, only months after defending Polanski and Allen, Winslet spoke tearfully about bitter regrets I have had at poor decisions to work with individuals with whom I wish I had not. Sexual abuse is a crime. It lies with all of us to listen to the smallest of voices. Whoopi Goldberg, though, on The View, maintains Roman Polanski's crime wasn't, quote, rape rape, end quote. In 2008, filmmaker Marina Zenovich caught the mood and pushed it further with her documentary, the Queasley titled Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, which argued that Polanski was the victim of gross judicial misconduct during his case. In one of those ironies, we can only appreciate retrospect. This documentary, which presents an energetic case for the defense of a sex offender, was produced by the Weinstein Company. 
When Polanski was arrested in Switzerland in 2009, where he was jailed for two months and then put under house arrest, the house in this case being a chalet in the Alps, Deborah Winger claimed the whole art world suffers. A petition demanding his release was signed by more than 100 actors and filmmakers, including Emma Thompson, who later asked to have her name removed, Yasmina Reza, and Tilda Swinton. Harvey Weinstein wrote an open letter in his support in which he claimed, whatever you think of his so-called crime, Polanski has served his time. To conclude, more allegations have been made against him. In 2010, British actor Charlotte Lewis said Polanski abused her in 1983 when she was 16. Last year, four more allegations emerged. Former U.S. actor Mallory Millett said Polanski tried to rape her in 1970. German actor Rene Langer said the director raped her in Stad in 1972 when she was 15. A woman identified as Rob Robin M. said Polanski assaulted her in 1973 when she was 15, and a third, Marianne Bernard, accused him of assaulting her in 1979 when she was 10. Polanski denies these claims, but... To conclude, conclude, in 1979, Polanski gave a controversial interview with novelist Martin Amos, in which, discussing his conviction, he said, If I had killed somebody, it wouldn't have had so much appeal to the press, you see. But fucking, you see, and the young girls. Judges want to fuck young girls. Juries want to fuck young girls. Everyone wants to fuck young girls. End quote, Roman Polanski. Just going to let that hang in the air. I can't imagine what Emily would say if she was still here. People hurt people. Hey, what's up? Hey, hi. Hey, my loving partner bathed our son without me. Did you yell at him? Like, you take these moments away from me. (laughs) He went, you made your choice. (laughs) So I did read, Emily, the last line of the end Plansky thing of Plansky giving the interview and saying, uh, you see, everybody just wants to fuck young girls. Oh, yeah. The one thing, though, I have a question for you with Emily was with Hollywood and how they pretend like it doesn't matter until I mean, it kind of was the same way with the NFL and the Ray Rice case where it was like, oh, he hit his girlfriend in the elevator. And everybody was like, yeah, he shouldn't do that. And then the video came out and they're like, oh, wait, no, we're completely offended now. When Polanski was arrested in Switzerland in 2009, a petition demanding his release was signed by more than 100 actors and filmmakers. But there was more actors that liked to work with Polanski after all this being known, like Sigourney Weaver, Harrison Ford, Johnny Depp, Ewan McGregor, Pierce Brosnan, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet being herself being like, well, you just got to kind of got to put the allegations and the, the convictions to the side and just work with the individual. Knowing that I am a scorched earth individual and I want, you know, if you know that somebody is a monster and you work with them, I go, I want to take your statues away as well. Same thing with like baseball and steroids. Like, I don't think Barry Bonds should even touch the Hall of Fame. Mm. Where do you stand as far as everybody that was publicly for these individuals knowing that they had committed these atrocities because there are a lot of them in this playground we call Hollywood and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to because of things off the record well I, I mean timeline footnote off the record there there is there is a actually this this can be on is there is a spectrum of offenses and allegations the Aziz Azari versus the Harvey Weinstein. 
Yeah. And so I think, you know, people have to temper their, you know, what it is that they can find forgivable or what it is they can find provable and go from there. I was thinking like in terms of like Kate Blanchett's not exactly a struggling actor. You know, when she worked with Woody Allen on. Um, oh, yeah. I know we're not talking about Woody Allen today, but what was that? No, Blue but Cat? when she worked with. Blue, yeah. I mean, she'd already been Galadriel. I mean, she's. she's yeah, I can't speak and- to it. It's like it's everyone's got their own personal. I mean, if if people can absolutely separate the art from the artist and go and work with them. Yeah. I mean, I know what I would do, but I can't speak to what anyone else would do. Also, I wonder how many of these people signed this and spoke of this post Me Too. Right. Because pre Me Too truly is a different, it's a different fucking world. Because I, I look at the Me Too movement, or at least the 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 renewal of the Me Too movement in 2017 with uh, Alyssa Milano's tweet that then re-sparked Tarana Burke's uh, original movement from 2003. It was a reckoning, but it was more of a realization that everyone went, oh, wow, this is at a much more intense level than we were all aware of. You know, it, it, it was, it was a, it was a realization. I think everyone's like, yeah, of course there's, there's issues. Yeah, of course there's sexism and, and et cetera. But I, I don't think anyone was aware of how widespread and how, how ingrained it was within our society and every working environment until Me Too. Gotcha. I don't know what it's like in Hollywood, but I, I would, I mean, I would hope that post- this revelation of sexual abuse and um, the misuse of power for sexual ends. I would hope that in Hollywood, there's less of like that feeling as though as a woman, you are the only way to get ahead is to give in to advances like that. I like I like your answer. In fact, you know what? I also like the other thing that you said, and I don't know if it ever ended up on one of the previous previous quickies, but you said something to the effect of, you know what? The Pianist and Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby, these can be good movies. And Roman Polanski's a piece of shit. <laughs> and I was these, like, I can live with that. These, these exist that. in the same universe. That is a beautiful work of art. And this guy's a fucking rapist. <laughs> All right, so officially, Roman Polanski, we'll have to come to you since you can't come to us, but we'll be by to uh, pick up your Oscar. And we're gonna give that over to Mr. Danny Boyle for his direction of 28 Days Later. So that does it for another episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And that was Emily. And just wanna thank her one more time for being here with us, despite the fact that she has become a new mom. Having her opinion it's uh, very valuable to me. I value what comes out of her mouth, as I value what comes out of yours. Hey, thanks. All right, hey guys, real quick before we go, we're so grateful to all of you who have been supportive listeners shouting out to us, telling us good job, telling us bad job, telling us something. We love, love the feedback. Our little show, Spro and Lee, Take On The Academy, is wrapping up its first season. As I reflect back on the miserable year that 2020 was, I would say this has been one of the top highlights of the year, and it all came about during the shutdown of March, April, May. The fact that we are rounding it out in December is very bittersweet. 
but I have absolutely enjoyed the ride and I couldn't have done it with anybody better than you, Lee Charles. Thanks, man. Well, you conceived of the whole thing and invited me in and I appreciate it. I am equally grateful for the time that we have spent together. If you want to hit us up, you can find us on Instagram at Take On The Academy. On Facebook, we have a group on there, same name as the pods, Bro and Lee, Take On The Academy, both of which are proctored by our good friend, The Voice. Posts multiple times a week, you get some pictures, maybe some fun facts about the Oscars, let you know when a new episode is coming out, what it's going to be about, and maybe some of the controversy around it. So please, uh, come on, come on to Instagram, come on to Facebook, tell us you love us, tell us you hate us, tell us something. But please join in the conversation. Movies are always more fun to talk about with a big group. And then December 7th, mark your date for when we come back. We're going to go back. This is another one for the movie heads, probably right up there with the Ordinary People Raging Bull episode. We're going to go even further back than that. And we're going to talk about best picture of 1979, Kramer versus Kramer. Can't wait to see you then. Until then, stream 